The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And again, a big welcome, everyone who's here in the room in Minneapolis at the city center, and everybody here online. It's nice that we can gather in this way. And uh, if you didn't see it yet, I did put the Sunday resources there, uh, some information, including an article that from uh, one of the first, uh, I guess, overview of Theravada Buddhism, early Buddhism, that was written by Rapola Rahula back, I think, maybe even in the 60s, if not sooner. And uh, I thought it'd be nice as we begin this month to reflect on the path. Those of you who were participating in July, we talked about refuge, and I talked about refuge, we discussed that. And I thought we'd move into, well, what's the path? <clears throat> what do we do? What did the Buddha encourage us to do on this path of awakening? What is the Buddha's path of awakening? So I want to talk about that this morning, um, yeah, just to begin, and the way we often begin in early Buddhism is just an honest assessment of our predicament, and I thought I'd start with a little statement from one of my teachers, Saida Uteshaniya, this Burmese monk and wonderful meditation teacher, and he uh, writes, or spoke, we need to thoroughly understand how much the three unskillful root qualities of mind are torturing and tormenting us. That's a sobering and honest, you know, to observe our life, our mind, carefully enough to be able to say to ourselves, you know, these habits of my mind are problematic. You know, the habit of lust or greed, wanting what I don't have, not wanting what I do have, aversion, and delusion. You know, these different habits of denial and distractedness. And, and delusion is also described as thinking that I know, because then I'm not open, I'm not curious, because I think I know. So, as we just observe what it is to be a sensitive creature living a life, we begin to sense how oppressive the habit energies of our mind are. And we begin over time to be able to categorize them as habit energies that have to do with greediness, habit energies that have to do with aversiveness, hatred, fear, anxiety, right, all under that category of aversion, and habits that have to do with delusion, not seeing clearly, not being interested would be a, under the category of delusion, thinking that I know, thinking that it's okay to be disconnected or distracted, like, what's the big deal? That also is an aspect of delusion. And these habits, you know, not only, you know, we see them out in the world, 
but they're out there in the world, like our culture, whatever, is characterized by greed, hatred, and delusion, or greed, aversion, and delusion. But it's only, you know, that kind of cultural or worldwide characteristic, of course, is there because of each of our individual habits. Right? The world isn't greedy independent of our collective hearts. It's The world is the way it is because of the way cumulatively or all together we are relating, showing up. That's what makes the world the way it is. And uh, Sosayada says, you know, we haven't learned this lesson fully yet, how much our mind and our world are dominated by greediness, aversiveness, and delusion. We haven't learned this lesson fully yet. We don't learn our lesson the first time, the second time, or the third time. We only turn for help from wholesome qualities when we realize the unskillful qualities are running our lives and we no longer can stand it. <laughs> right? Then we're interested. Oh yeah, this isn't helping me or anybody. This is not who I want to be or how I want to be. It doesn't feel good for my mind to be dominated with these habits. And you know, these habits, it's not personal. It doesn't actually make sense to hate ourselves for these habits, to be greedy, to be aversive, to be deluded. These habits arise because of causes and conditions. It's not personal. And it, it can seem strange to say it this way. It's not personal, but we are responsible because to just let my greedy habits express themselves or my aversive habits express themselves, well, there's consequences to that. Right? They just keep getting reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. So what's a person to do? And uh, what the Buddha says is, you know, we're being asked, and this is what I talked about in July, you can go back to the YouTube channel if you want to listen to any of those talks, if you didn't catch them. Um, but we're cultivating this, we're taking refuge really in this Buddha and Dhamma, being awake, Buddha, that's what Buddha means, we're being awake, Dhamma, to the way it is, to the conditions, to the underlying nature that's here and now. And interestingly, we get a sense of our predicament when we realize how, in an ongoing way, our mind is not interested in the way it is. And we've replaced that, that kind of spiritual interest, that real curiosity with a sense of certainty. I know the way it is. So why do I have to be interested? And the example I often give, many of you have heard this, I think it's worth repeating, even for those of us who've been practicing for a long time. I'm in my 41st year now of practice, sitting every day, or almost every day at least, over these four decades. And uh, Still, it's good for me to remember like how easy it is 
to a day, to a part of a day, to not be interested in the mind. And what do we mean by mind? You know, this capacity of being sensitive, this capacity of knowing, like that, for periods of time, my mind can be oblivious to, when clearly it's the most relevant thing about being human, is that there is this sensitivity, this knowing, and yet we don't pay attention, we're not interested in the nature of the mind, you could say, the nature of the knowing mind, the sensitive heart. And if you're feeling right now like, yeah, well, big deal, I know that. But it's one thing to know intellectually that the mind knows that the heart is sensitive, and it's a whole other thing to learn how to be awake to this nature of the mind, let's call it, and then to be awake, to continue to keep it in mind in a, with some continuity. Because it, it's sort of a powerful, even existential choice. I can either be the doer of my life, where I'm giving a talk, and I'm checking in, like, are you looking at the people online? <laughs> you know, are you listening? You know, am I, am I off? Is it a useful talk? looking for feedback, you know, I could be doing the business of my life and really imagining that I'm doing it, my life. Or, even while I'm doing the same thing, the same stuff is happening, I could learn to have more and more interest in the experience that's here and now, that this is being known. Mark giving a talk on Sunday morning is being known. And we think, well, no, no, the talk will end if I'm aware that it's like this now. Or how can I drive my car if I'm aware that driving is like this now? Well, that's why it's a training. You can, we can definitely learn how to be awake to the way it is. We can prioritize that wakefulness to the way that it is, that receptive knowing, without getting in the way of the activity of life, including giving a Dharma talk on Sunday morning at Common Ground Meditation Center or doing whatever you do in your lives. We just think, no, 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 I'm the doer. I need these special circumstances. So we do, we, we create this thing we call kindergarten or daily meditation time, where we don't have a lot of demands as the doer. Just sit still in a relaxed way. <laughs> That's the demand. And then we learn in that more simple environment of our daily sitting time to keep this underlying nature of the mind, the knowing mind, to be aware, oh yeah, this experience is being known and being known, and being known, and being known, with some continuity. And we'll see, like especially as you get a little better at that, that the mind will still think about stuff, and plan, and worry, and act out in the way that our mind is, you know, has tendencies to express itself, the thinking mind. 
the emotion, emotional mind, right? It still does what it does, but now there's this new thing online, which is, oh, it's like this now. This is being known. So we see the mind, the worrying mind, worrying, and then there's this non-judgment, almost like a mirror, like, oh yeah, this is being known. And the Buddha asks us to persist at this. Interestingly, the last thing the Buddha said before he died, he used this word apamada, which usually gets translated as vigilance or persistence or being wholehearted. Practice wholeheartedly with vigilance. Don't give up. And he's basically saying, hey, there's a way being this wise presence, this capacity we all have to be aware of what the mind is knowing, what the mind is doing, like a mirror can reflect, the mind can reflect back to itself, this is being known, it's like this now, all day long. And you want to be really persistent at keeping that in mind. And in a way, the way to think about that is, it's what allows for transformation or change or learning. Because when there's this reflective, when we've developed this mental muscle to be reflectively aware of what the mind is doing, what the mind is knowing, then it opens up the possibility of seeing how the mind, what the mind is doing that is not skillful, setting emotion stress and problems for myself and others. And when the mind is relating, showing up in a skillful way and setting emotion healing and releasing and ease and well-being. And to know the difference between ways of relating what the mind can be doing that's not skillful, what the mind can be doing that is skillful deep into the bones, we eventually learn, oh yeah, this is not the way the mind, what the mind is doing right now, how the mind is related right now, because there's awareness of it, I really know this isn't helping. This is setting emotion stress. This should be abandoned. Doesn't mean we can't abandon that habit of mind, but at least the wisdom awareness knows, oh yeah, the mind is acting out in an unskillful way. It's digging these unwholesome grooves deeper. It's not helping anybody. But it's really good to know that, right? If, we're, if the mind is acting out, it's really good to know it. We might think it's better to be oblivious when we're acting out, because it's so painful to realize it. But it's that unpleasant feeling of seeing the mind, the heart being unskillful, that actually sets emotion to transformation. It isn't really right to say that I've stopped myself from being bad. You know, I've stopped myself from being, from over-worrying or over-planning or for being so judgmental or for being so grumpy or for being so, you know, you fill in the blank, whatever your tendency of your personality might be. It's not really right to imagine that I stopped doing that. 
if you did stop an unhelpful, unskillful pattern, the way that happens is there are a lot of moments where that wisdom awareness knows, oh, it's like this, with some continuity, so it's connecting the dots. It's really seeing that it's not helpful. Oh, that addictive pattern of eating more food than my body needs right now. Or that addictive pattern of thinking I need every neat thing I see somebody else having. Oh, I want that. Uh oh, that's a cool car. I want a car like that. Oh, you have a cabin? I want a cabin. You've got that cool sweater? I want a sweater like that. I want a new iPhone. I want a... and on and on. So then we observe that, and we observe, like the tracking of that experience, we observe the crunch, the contraction that goes with greed, or the contraction that goes with aversion, or even the contraction that goes with delusion, like being distracted, caught up, disconnected, actually also comes with tension. And we see that because there's that reflective, mindful awareness doing what that reflective, mindful awareness does. It illuminates cause and effect. The, con the conditional, lawful unfolding, cause and effect. Oh, this is why the heart, mind, and body is so tight so much of the time. Because the mind is relating like this, right? We start connecting the dots. Oh yeah, when I'm relating, as if, when I get this, I'll be happy, then I get tight, because I, I don't have it yet, so I should be tight, because I can't be released until I get what I want, right? And we start, it all starts to make sense how this body, mind, heart is so burdened, and how it can become unburdened. That's how we begin to understand the path, that it really relies on this persistence, we have to first know what the Buddha, what our teachers mean by this wisdom awareness, this mindful awareness, this present moment awareness, this reflective knowing. And we have to learn, we have to build a capacity to persist, to have some continuity. And then it makes sense why we got to set aside some time, because without kindergarten, we're not going to build the confidence and the capacity to be living our day, each day, each minute, more and more at least, with more of that present moment awareness. It can, with practice, become the predominant habit of the mind. Initially, it's tiresome, because initially it seems, it's not actually true, but it will initially seem like, I have to be mindful. And now I've got to be mindful again, and now again. And I'm so, it's so stupid. Why, you know, it's like... Because what we'd really like is like a moment of being mindful, and then I'm done. It's, Sharon Salzberg has this great line, she calls it uh, the practice, the torment of continuity, right? It's like, from an egoic point of view, having to be present for the rest of my life feels like an undoable amount of work. But we have to move in that direction. 
because it it does the practice initially does feel very personal. Just like we imagine that being distracted is personal, it isn't. It's nature. The mind the, the mind wanders, and it being mindful isn't personal either. Ultimately, but initially, that personal effort, that personal valuing of being present that personal getting myself to the meditation chair, the meditation cushion, or Kamgram Meditation Center, or the next, you know, Buddhist retreat, or whatever, it feels as personal as anything feels personal. But we're building this capacity, this natural and impersonal capacity, just like so many of our habit energies don't feel that personal, but they got set in motion often in a personal way. And then they became habit, and then they just became the character, the personality, right? And now we can't stop them. We may not like a lot of our personality attributes, but try to just say, well, I'm in charge here because it's my personality, so stop. <laughs> Does that work? No, because it's not personal. You know, if our personality was actually personal, it certainly wouldn't be this personality. <laughs> I don't know about you, but this is not the personality I would have chosen. If I personally went through the buffet line when you got all your personality attributes, this is not what I would have put together. But it is the way that it is, and it doesn't make sense for me to imagine that I'm not responsible. Initially, it makes sense for me to personally take responsibility for what is actually not personal. And I personally learn, how does this get set in motion, and how does this get transformed? And so we study, use the mind to study the mind, we cultivate this present moment awareness, and we observe, it basically the dots we're connecting are, how is the mind relating right now? So it's not just what the mind is knowing, Oh, it's hearing a sound, or it's feeling the body sitting, or it's feeling the breath coming in, or it's noticing that the mind is planning. But it's also how is the mind relating to what the mind is knowing? Is it relating in an irritated way, in a greedy way, in a scattered way, in a clear way, in an aversive way, in a kind way? How is the mind relating? What's the mind knowing? And we can also know how the mind is relating. And they're not really different, they're like two facets of the present moment. What's being known, and the filters or the way of relating that the mind is knowing through. The filter, you could say. And we're observing what way of relating sets emotion tension, and suffering, and what ways of relating, what, what ways of knowing, set emotion release. And we're really getting clear about that. Because we care. Nobody will make us do this. Nobody can make us do this. We will only do this if we connect the doing of this practice in a initially very personal way. This is how I take care of myself. Because I do care about this life, this is what I can do. I can get to know the mind, 
And by getting to know the mind, I can get to know which ways this mind relates that are skillful and what ways this mind relates that are unskillful. And I take this up as hard as it may be because this is the way to take care of this life. Ultimately, this is the most important way. We still got to wash the dishes and do our laundry and take care of our relationships and figure out a way to pay the bills and feed ourselves. But you can do all those functional things to survive and still be very, 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 very unhappy. Right, so surviving is not the same as peace, release, ease, happiness, freedom. And there are a lot of people who live a long life who are very unhappy, right? So mostly we get that survival can't be the only thing, <laughs> right? So if we're privileged enough not to be on the edge of survival, fortunate enough not to be currently starving or without shelter or you know, just doing well enough that we can be interested in this, you could call it a more spiritual, important spiritual question. What, what is the way, what is the path toward real happiness? The happiness of release. The happiness of the heart that is unburdened by life, unburdened by relationship, unburdened by having a body, unburdened by birth and death, you know, mortality, unburdened by whatever might burden our heart. I'm interested in being unburdened to the nth degree. And that, in a sense, is what a human being does can do at least, when it has the privilege of not being on the edge of survival. Otherwise, you know, when we are on the edge, now we can think we're on the edge a lot of the time when we're not actually on the edge. You know, we can be obsessed about dying when we're not actually dying, or health when our health is good enough, or financial ruin when we actually are getting by well enough. So we don't want like this uh, necessity of taking care of survival, it just has to be good enough. Because otherwise, you know, we'll see people who are really at the, you know, 1% in terms of affluence and resources at their disposal. And what are they doing? They're obsessing about survival. More money, more security for the money I do have, you know, a bigger gate in front of the house. Well, what happens if the 12 cars I have don't start? I'll get a 13th, right? I noticed that I was uh, shelving some books in, in the teacher library in our office, and uh, there are a few books, the important books, that we have more than one copy of in case one of those important books gets checked out and somebody needs, right? And it's just like, well, how many of those important books, how many copies of the Buddha's Middle Link Discourses do we need? 
<laughs> it's endless. You know, how many slacks do we need? How many this, how many that? So we have to be fearless, like, okay, I do have some space of my li in my life to put aside getting more security and more safety, and I can do this sort of foundational work of interest, interest in the nature of the mind and the nature of suffering and its release. And that's what the Buddha means by the path. He's not, you know, there's a lot of people who can tell us how to take care of the body, how to take care, you know, finding a job, a suitable livelihood, how to feed the body in an appropriate way, how to keep the body healthy, all these sort of things, how to have good relationships in our lives. But the Buddha is saying that even when you're doing all those things with a lot of confidence, all the survival things, good social relationships, good health, good this and that, you're not going to be completely satisfied. Because whatever that security is, it's temperamental, it's uncertain, it's going to go away. Your health, your social relationships, your possessions, we, nobody keeps anything. And we know that whether we're conscious of it or not, on some level, we know that the elements of survival are tenuous and go away. If you don't know that, remember that. That's what we, in the last month, we were chanting the five remembrances. I'm of the nature to grow old. I have not gone beyond aging. I am the nature to be sickened, I have not gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die, I have not gone beyond death. All that is mine, everything that I own, all my possessions, everything that's beloved to me will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my intentional actions. Every intentional action I do leaves an impression. I am the heir, right? So that's the last ref reflection on karma. This is all that I have, or the, this mind stream, these impressions that have been laid down by the way I've been relating. Every time I relate to an experience, not the experience, but the way that I'm knowing it, relating to it, that leaves an impression. So if I'm relating with greed, that tendency to be greedy gets laid down more deeply. If I'm relating with kindness, that way of relating gets laid down. So the heart that's knowing and relating and responding, that's a living thing, right? It's a natural process that is being created in each moment of relating. When I relate intentionally, I see Cam, and I relate to him, I interact with him, or I ignore him. But whatever way I relate, that leaves an impression in my heart. That's the last reflection. So we ground in this, and it makes us interested in really studying the mind all day long. And so this is the, you know, I'll talk this month about the path, but the first part of the path, and there's a lot more that 
we can talk about and reflect on. And you can read the article that's in the chat. And for those of you in the room, I think Robin is putting these resources on the blog. So just go to the website and one of the main links on the homepage is the blog and you'll see the, the link to the article and I'll put more articles as the month goes on. But the first thing is just to um, generate this persistence, this wholeheartedness. Oh yeah, being aware that this mind is knowing, that this mind is relating right now, that's relevant, how the mind is relating, what the mind is knowing and how the mind is relating. And remember, this is not a cognitive thing that we don't figure out intellectually that the mind is knowing and how the mind is relating. It's an observational thing. Like just to get it clear for us, just check right now, what is that effort that's needed right now to be aware that the mind is knowing? And what the mind is knowing. And how the mood is, how is the mind relating to this experience? Is it clear? Like a clear mirror? Or is it distorted? Does the way that the mind is relating right now, does it have an agenda? Does it have a point of view, like, I'm an idiot? and I better get my act together, or my life will be a failure. I am never going to be able to do it. Other people can do this practice, but not me. Right? There may be that sort of background attitude, I, I, everything I start, I don't finish. Or, I'm too old to be doing this. I should have started when I was in my 20s. Mark started when he, he was in his 20s. But now it's too late. So then we notice that that attitude, and what do we probably notice about an attitude like that? Oh, that's not a helpful attitude. Right? That attitude is a cause for getting tight. Oh, good to know. That attitude isn't helpful. And then we might beat ourselves up because we have an unhelpful attitude. Okay, beating myself up is like this. This is what's being known. Oh, that's not helpful either. Hating myself for being judgmental, or whatever. Because the mirror doesn't do anything but reflect back. Now it's like this. Now it's like this. And this is what allows the mind to learn. And when you get some really uh, beautiful momentum, then you'll have an opposite problem. You'll feel like, oh no, I have to personally do something, because I'm practicing. And eventually wisdom awareness will go, oh, that idea that I have to be the Buddhist practitioner is a cause for stress. Right? Because when there is some momentum, when the awareness, that present moment awareness is just there, doing what present moment awareness does, we don't need that personal sense of me wanting to be present. It's clunky and unnecessary and stressful. 
But initially, you may need that, like, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I don't really quite get it yet, but it seems, it makes a lot of sense to me that if I'm going to be a human being, I might as well be present. If I'm going to have a life, it doesn't really make sense not to be aware. What's the point? Right? To be, have a human life and to unconsciously gravitate towards unawareness. I mean, it, it, when you say it out loud, you really get, like, oh yeah, that's crazy. It doesn't make sense. If we're going to have a human life, what makes sense is to be vividly present in this ongoing way, to be intimate, to be really feeling what we're feeling, and in particular, recognizing that how the mind is relating matters. This is really the point of karma which is a concept that's often misunderstood. What the Buddhist teachings on karma mean is, the way the mind is relating right now matters. It doesn't matter because the Buddha says it matters. It matters because when we watch, when we observe how the mind is relating, we can directly sense the impression that's being left in the mind stream, in the heart. Nobody has to tell us, oh, that was unskillful, Mark. Because all we have to do is observe. When I relate in this way, this is the ongoing reverberation. Oh, that's a heavy load. Or when I relate in this skillful way, there is the absence, no trace. The heart is very light and unburdened. Oh, that's why we call it skillful because there's no trace. That's why we call it unskillful, because the heart is left with a trace, it's burdened. There's a heavy impression left. So in that sense, the kind of um, moral or, you know, the result, the karmic fruit, is known here and now. It's not like Santa Claus is keeping track or God is keeping track. It's happening right here in the body, heart, mind, this experience. It's right here. Again, some later schools of Buddhism, they had to figure out like, where's the storehouse of all those karmic impressions? You know, you know, philosophers and you gotta like map it all out. But it's here and now, the latent, all the underlying tendencies that's what we sense here now. So when something happens in this moment, like I see an attractive person, or I have a disturbing thought of something I did that was so humiliating, or I remember a skillful action, it reverberates all the latent tendencies that are related to whatever experience I'm having. That's how we know that the storehouse of karmic impressions can only be one place, because there is only one place, here and now. This is the only place to store stuff. There is no other place. No future. Is there a future somewhere? No. There's just this. Is there a past? We might deludedly think there's something behind us, but the past is gone. The future isn't here. As we say in early Buddhism, now is the knowing. 
this is what we have. So you might think, or we might think appropriately that this heart has a lot of unresolved pain, a lot of unresolved trauma even, or unfinished business. It's probably true, all of that is probably true. But it's important to understand it's here and now, because that evokes that interest, doesn't it? Well, maybe I should be interested. And can I learn to be aware from this place of innocence? Let me just track, let me learn all over again, cause and effect. Instead of presuming I know, let me put more and more energy in being aware, being awake, and less and less the idea that I have to do, I have to fix, I have to choose. The doing, the choosing, the fixing, that's going to happen anyway. Because we learn our life, all of this, it's already happening on its own. We go through life anyway on autopilot so much of the time. To think all of a sudden that i got to do my life when we're so at ease being on autopilot so much of the day anyway is kind of funny. Right? So we can just trust the awareness and let life, the choices, let Mark be Mark. And like I said, we'll keep coming back to this in the weeks ahead. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.